D.L. Moody, evangelist of the 19th century, said that I've had more trouble with myself than any other man. I've had more trouble with myself than any other man. Our pride regularly trips us up. I've had more trouble with myself than any other man. Do you believe that's true for you? Would you say objectively, looking at your life, that somebody else has been the main obstacle? Or would you agree with Mr. Moody that you've been the one to cause yourself more trouble? As we look at plague 5, 6, and 7, remember, when you hear the word plague, you can think, that was dangerous. This, this pulpit cannot handle that. But you'll think of the word strike. Strike. These are ten strikes upon Egypt of judgment. In every one of these, pills back a, a, a layer like an onion of pride upon Pharaoh. In which the reader, we come to this and we look and say, surely, surely now he'll humble himself. And yet, he will not. The man that looked and we heard first the statement of, let my people go that may, they may go and serve me. He continually hardens his heart, actively and passively. His will is set in that he would look and say, who is the Lord that I should obey Him? With a heart that says, does the Lord know who I am that He should certainly obey me? Pride, like one of those little doll collection sets that has another doll inside of it and you continue to take them apart and apart and apart and apart. Pride, there's always lurking in the shadows. As we look at these passages and Pharaoh's response and Israel's response, at this point going through the plagues, it's possible that now a part of our congregation, if you've been sitting through these sermons, you're now at a point where you're like, why doesn't he just go ahead and just do all the plagues in one swoop? We get the idea. Because the, the pride of Pharaoh becomes repetitive. Each of these strikes has a little bit of a different flavor, but there's a lot of symmetry in them. But that's what pride does. We can look at Pharaoh and say, how is this guy not getting it at this point? Look at how miserable and terrible it's been. But that's what pride even does for us as the listener. There is this dangerous trap that we can make coming to Scripture, coming to an account, a historical account that's 3,500 years old, and we can look at Pharaoh and his foolishness and his pride. and We can say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him with pride in our hearts. Pride numbs. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 and then 13 through 18, the very first portion of the seventh plague, just the warning portion. And in each of these, we're going to notice a contrast that every person, if you do not know Christ, you likely fall in the beginning of these responses, the response to what the Scripture says in plague 5 and 6. But then if the Lord has illuminated your heart and your mind to understanding. You'll come to conclude as you look at these, those that have been illuminated and their hearts humbled will look and say what Scripture says about the first 12 verses. And then we'll look at plague 7 and we'll see the very same component that some will look at what the Lord says and why He's doing the judgment, why He's raising up Pharaoh and pouring out His judgment upon him. And some will look and say God is a narcissist. He's an egomaniac. He's so filled with pride. Why would I even give him my worship anyway? But others will look. The believer looks and says that that is actually the greatest gift that God can give. That people would know Him. 
and would worship Him and obey Him, and that His glory might indeed be proclaimed even in His sovereignty through the power of the outpouring of judgment. So where might you be this morning is my question. As you come to these texts, ask the Lord to show you your heart. And for me personally, in preparation for this sermon, and I I pray that this impacts and spills into my week ahead, that I would, in two ways, number one, I would become more alarmed at the realization that Pharaoh's pride is not a different species of pride as my own. It's the same substance. It's the same type of stuff. The same pride that numbs him to walk into the foolishness that causes hurt to himself, his magicians, his family, his household, and all of Egypt is the same type of pride that I have. And that would lead me to celebrate and to cling to the grace of God. And all of these things, as we look at the seventh plague, would propel me to, with more confidence and more joy, to share of the news of Jesus and the hope that all who will come into him will be saved. So let's look at the first as we summarize it in this way, verses 1 through 12, that I am objective and will always follow the evidence. This is the common belief of the unbeliever. It's a belief. Sounds very confident, doesn't it? I'll always follow the evidence, but what is that? That itself is a belief statement. See the irony of these things. I'm objective and will always follow the evidence. That's what Pharaoh demanded. Do you remember when all this got kicked off? That first interaction with the staff and the serpent? Do you remember what Pharaoh said to Moses and to Aaron? Prove yourselves. He demands evidence. He doesn't want all the evidence that God gives, though, does he? Because most all the rest of the plagues lead to him saying, basically, stop proving yourself. Uh, That's enough evidence. I'm stuffed. No more evidence. No more plagues. No more strikes. He believes he's a man of reason and a man of power, himself a god and representing the gods of Egypt. And yet he's humbled. He didn't actually want to follow the evidence. And that's what we see in Proverbs 16 through 18. The believer, by God's grace, is able to say, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's summarized more culturally by what? Pride comes before the. So, all you Arkansas Razorback fans in our church, you stay humble. All right? Don't want to hear it. Hear a thing. Now, the fifth plague, the strike upon Egypt, has a unique spin on it, doesn't it? Now he's targeting the cattle, the livestock, and we can look at that in 2021, and we could say, well, that sounds bad, but not that bad. I mean, you don't go with meat for a while, okay. Or for us, as we have so many recreational animals and pets and little companions, and they do serve a special purpose in our hearts. But we look at this and we think, well, what's the significance of that? Well, in this culture and society, the the animal, the livestock, were their livestock. What God is going to do to the Egyptian cattle is going to be like the great collapse of the stock market. Their economy will be wrecked. Their area of trade and movement. This won't simply set them back for a week of discomfort or serious fear like the gnats or the frogs, this will be a generational devastation upon Egypt's economy. He sees what's about to be poured out upon him, and yet he still will not humble himself. The Pharaoh's heart in this way is strengthened in the direction that it goes. You look down in verse 7, and look what it says, the response to this. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. 
but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. We see down in verse 12 as well, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh in plague 5 and 6. Moses has given us an insight that Pharaoh has both actively hardened his heart and the Lord has hardened his heart. So what should we say then? Is, is Pharaoh a victim since the Lord has hardened his heart? And the answer is no. Pharaoh is not a victim. The Lord has simply set Pharaoh's heart and will toward what he said he wanted to do. It's, this is not a perfect example, but uh, you've heard of this idea of somebody trying to drink a gallon of milk and they're really excited about it, and they begin drinking the gallon of milk, and then their stomach starts gurgling, and they start making inappropriate noises, and they start to quit around halfway through. What's the Lord do? Let me help your will continue to drink what you think you want to drink. And He allows him to continue forward. And the scene gets more and more graphic until everything spews up over all of Egypt and ultimately Israel is spewed out of Egypt. The imagery is just wonderful. But that's what sin does. See, by this point now, plague 5, 6, and 7, if you're like me, we look and we look at Pharaoh with a sense of judgment. What a fool. What a proud fool. How has he not figured it out yet? Not only is he a proud fool, but look at the devastation that it's causing. He's suffering. His animals are suffering. His people are suffering. His magicians, the plague of the boils, they strike the ground and Moses throws into the air and these pus-filled boils begin to fill and to plague the people. And who explicitly does the Scripture give us insight to the ones that are most immediately plagued with the most graphic of information? It's the magicians. His own wise men and counsel that he's assembled right in front of them, it says. Right in front of Pharaoh's own face. The people that he would have been incredibly close to. Boils are exploding up over all of their body. And it says they're in so much pain and suffering. What do they do? They hit the ground. They can't physically stand because the pain is so extreme. He knows exactly why it's happening. But his heart does not humble. You think about it. What's the last we've heard of the magicians? What's his relationship? What's Pharaoh's relationship to the magicians at this point? If we've been following along, they were in good graces until the last time we saw the magicians. What did the magicians say about the, the plague of the gnats? They looked and they said, Behold, this is the finger of God. They told Pharaoh, Listen, uh, you're having us go head to head with the literal God. This is... This is the true God, okay? We've done a lot of sleight of hand and a lot of things, but this is legitimate. You're making us go head-to-head with God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their God is legitimate. We're outmatched. And what did Pharaoh do when they told him that? He cut them off. He would not listen to them. And now what's their next fate? Boils over their body, extreme pain, and they hit the ground in agony. And yet, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. This is one of the great myths that an unbeliever believes, and even believers can become forgetful in. The idea that we're objective and will always follow the evidence. That is false. Pride comes before the fall. The late atheist and the world-respected genius Stephen Hawking said it this way. He mentions here religion, but the context of this quote is actually regarding Christianity. Christianity. 
He softens it with religion. But he said, religion is a fairy story, a fairy tale for those afraid of the dark. Religion is a fairy tale for those afraid of the dark. They're not intelligent. They're fearful of things. They need something to comfort them in death. They can't handle the cold, hard reality of the darkness and purposelessness of life. Jesus agrees with Dr. Hawking. Did you know that? Dr. Hawking thinks he's making some slight toward Christianity. Christians don't believe because they're afraid of the darkness. But what does the Christian say? The Christian says, Mr. Hawking, we know the darkness. The darkness is not only outside of us, but it is in us. We've seen what the darkness has done in our life, done in our relationships, done in our hopes and our dreams. We've pursued things, and yet the darkness rules over us. We're enslaved to darkness. And Jesus comes and He tells us in John chapter 3, verse 19, listen, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So when Dr. Hawking makes this believed revelatory statement, he's breaking new ground. Religion is a fairy tale for those afraid of the dark. What Jesus says is, you love the darkness. And that's why you suppress and deny the light. And what the believer in Christ is able to say is, praise God that He's illuminated our hearts and softened our hearts and shown us the light and freed us from our captivity and given us life and given us then a commissioning to go and proclaim of the light who has come into the world. The only one that can give true hope and true life and true forgiveness of sins and true adoption is Jesus Christ. The light has come into the world. And as believers in 1 John, we're called to walk in the light as He is in the light. For we have fellowship with one another by the blood of Christ. There's good news. Dr. Hawking in pride makes this statement, but in reality, he's confessing what Jesus said is true. He loves the darkness. Pharaoh loves the darkness. There's a danger of pride that in rebellion against God longs to close our grip with such a hard fist that even as the Lord strips back components that show us that we're not God. You see, every one of us in this room needs to sleep. And so we have to turn ourselves off. Regardless of how hard you strive to be successful in your life, your body will shut down and you will sleep. As you grieve and you hurt in life, and emotionally you begin to get tapped out, your body will shut down to even adrenal levels. And one day will be our last day as the ultimate reality and reminder that we are not God. And that's what the Lord gives clarity here to Pharaoh, that we're not equals. We're not on the same playing field. They could not stand. And so what do we do with this reality of our pride? Whether it's hit your life if you don't yet know Christ, and so you've generally avoided or allowed the story of Scripture to be turned into a meme to make fun of or to distance yourself from. But the very God who knows you, who wove you together in your mother's womb, He knows exactly who you are in the depth of your pride. He knows who Pharaoh is. And so, 
I encourage you, if you don't know Christ, I want to ask you, how much evidence do you think is really enough before you turn and entrust your sin and your life to Jesus Christ alone? How much evidence do you really want? How much evidence do you really need? I assure you, Pharaoh wished he asked for less evidence. Give your life to Christ. Mark it on a connect card. We have ministry leaders every Sunday up here that would love to pray with you and encourage you, but confess your sin and give your allegiance to Jesus, the one who defeated death and rose again. In Him we have hope. You see, in our lives, and this is part of the beauty, and so this part I would say is an application for us as believers. As believers, lean into fellowship in the local church. And what you'll find in how God will till the soil of our hearts, making it ever tender and more and more tender. He'll do this in two ways. Our congregation has lost several members recently. Just two of those that I'll mention. As many more could mention, but two. Uh, Jack and Francis and Bob Nelson. And both of those men had a, had a characteristic in their life that when you were around them, I think of Bob sitting right up here in this spot always. Do you know why Bob sat up here, by the way? So back in 2019 in the fall, in 2019, we always get this huge rush of, rush of students and everybody's back in life. And so first or, or second or third or fourth week of August, it's usually, as you know, it's really, really full in here. And it was so full in 2019 that we had people that were coming into the doors and leaving. We thought this shouldn't be. So we gave an appeal to the church through the week and the week to week, the midweek announcement. Uh, and we asked, would you consider sitting to the front to make room for people in the back that can come in and, and sit down if you're able to? So Bob, this young man, uh, took that response and he came and he sat in the front. And like happens with most semesters, as the semester went on, it got less and less crowded. But Bob stayed there. Bob would sit there with his daughters and he would just stay there. And we're talking after now COVID hit, and there were Sundays where we had like 80 people in the service, okay? And Bob would still sit right here at the front. And I asked him I, one Sunday, I said, why do you sit there still? It encourages me, because there's somebody here within semi-spitting distance. It's good to know if my mic goes out, one person will hear me. But he said, I'll never forget it, other people in the back could use a seat more than me. And he'd walk all the way to the front early to get his seat, in which usually nobody was within a few pews. Humility of heart. When you see a humility of heart in a Christ-likeness, do you know what it does to us? It draws us. It compels us to come and it exposes for us and ourselves our pride. And it helps us to peel it off ourselves and say, Lord, I want to be like that man or that woman that I see Christ in. The second component is of how the Lord strips back pride as we lean in together as a church family is what? We get close enough. See, a, a long-distance picture, you can't see blemishes or pimples or different, different shortcomings, but the closer you get and you can see every different pore and you can begin to uh, uh, share things with somebody else. And that's what the local church is. I want to encourage you this year, in this next couple months, you know, so if you break the year down into thirds, this is the last third of the year of 2021, I want to encourage you to get close enough that you start to dislike some other people in our church. Okay, so you get close enough that you start to see some of the flaws. So that not that you can just expose them and be like, hey, look at that. But like somebody that loves each other, that we can minister the Word of God to each other and have enough credibility with each other to also be able to say, hey, how are you doing here? 
how can I help serve you in this way? Have you ever thought about this? You see the difference? So Pharaoh shows us in the fifth and sixth plague the, the reality of the hardening of heart and the self-deception. And so as a congregation, we help expose, the Lord uses us, ministers through us, so that we help to expose those weaknesses before there's a fall. Let's look secondly then as we look at the seventh plague in verses 13 through 18, the first portion of it. There's kind of two responses that people will take because the Lord gives the exact reason these things are happening. Some people will look at this and say, God is an egomaniac and doesn't deserve my worship. But others will look at this same statement in these verses and will say, the greatest gift that God can give His creation is the knowledge of and relationship with Himself. Look what it says in 13-14. through 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, so he's still experiencing the, the pain of the last of the boils. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Isn't it good that God hasn't changed in his demands? I mean, again, we've said it a couple times, but isn't it good in a world that's ever shifting in policy and personality and preferences that the Lord doesn't shift? Faithful, let my people go, has not stopped. Pharaoh has caved different demands, but the Lord is faithful. And for this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Why? So imagine there's some in Egypt that they're just talking down by the water cooler of the Nile River. And they haven't got the picture. I mean, they should have figured out by now because the plagues, these last plagues have not impacted Israel. They've impacted all the Egyptians. And they're down and they're talking and one of them sincerely looks at the other and says, this has been like the worst 15 days to stop the spread ever. This has been a terrible experience. I mean, this is, this is literally like biblical proportions. We've never seen anything like this before. Why is this happening? And they still haven't put the dots together that Israel <laughs> has been shielded from these things. Look what he tells them. And then you hear this. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on all your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. God is raising up Pharaoh and bringing suffering upon Egypt, the likes they had never known. Why? So that they would know Him. In a world that so easily looks at this and says, why would God allow that to happen? Is God unjust for bringing the suffering upon the animals? Is God unjust for bringing the suffering upon Egypt and the magicians? The magicians, after all, already confessed that it was the finger of God, and yet they're the ones that are breaking out in horrific boils. Is God unjust to bring suffering? He tells them, for by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. What Pharaoh in his heart has done is a similar thing that Adam has done in the garden. Pharaoh believes that he's an equal with God. In pride, his heart has said, we're equals. Let's come to the negotiation table and get this right. And what God says here very clearly is if I wanted to, I could have ceased to sustain you and cut you off and all of Egypt off from the face of the earth long ago. We are not equals. I am God. You are not. I am Creator. 
you are creation. I am potter, you are clay. But I bring this judgment that you will know who I am. You said in chapter 5, who is the Lord? I will show you who the Lord is, the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob over all the nations of the earth. I will show you who I am. And I will show you who I am in such a great and grand and powerful way that all the nations of the world will know who I am. And for the descendants that will come for Israel, they will look back to this judgment that I'm bringing upon you, these ten strikes, and they will remember my works forever. October 31st is a Sunday. We'll observe the Lord's Supper on that day as well. and We'll be studying the Passover text in particular. And every year the Jews would gather and remember the Passover of God's judgment poured out upon these sinners. But also His faithful deliverance. The unbeliever looks at this and says, who would believe? Listen, who would believe in a God that would pour out such wrath and judgment? Who could believe in such a God? And then you simply keep reading and you get to Joshua chapter 2. And we meet this prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab says when the spies come to her, the whole nations, all of the city of Jericho is terrified because they've heard of your God and what He's done. And Rahab comes and she's delivered She believes upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She comes to know the true God because of the judgment that God pours out upon Egypt. The difficulty in our lives, listen, is that we only see God's judgment poured out slowly or progressively and it either happens at the pace that we want or it does not happen at the pace that we want. But God is so good and faithful and works in such a way that He knows all things and is working all of these things for His glory and the deliverance of His people, that they may come to know Him. That's the greatness of our God, that all the earth may come to know the Lord God. And here we are in Nacogdoches, Texas, remembering exactly the faithfulness and the working of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Any student that enters into a philosophy and ethics class or or a general introduction to ethics class will come across David Hume. David Hume articulated the very statement that many come to believe when you think of the God of Scripture. He said, it is an absurdity to believe that the deity has human passions. It's absurd to believe that one of the lowest human passions, a restless appetite for applause, could be found in the deity. He makes a statement, basically, if this God is the true God and His desire for applause... Such a petty appetite is so needed that he's not even worthy of consideration. Do you think Hume wrote that desiring applause? Isn't that one of the great ironies? What a small appetite that the God of gods would desire applause. Applaud, right? That's in the heart of fallen man. What Hume does not know is the glory of God. The greatest thing that we can do in our lives is respond to God who's revealed Himself sufficiently in Scripture. 
He's spoken in creation that testifies of God. He's given us a conscience written upon our hearts that bears witness against us. Even if you deny Jesus Christ, your conscience, like an expert trial lawyer, sits there and bears witness against you that you do not measure up. All come short of the glory of God. And God has made Himself known in the person of Christ and His Word. And what I want to give you is what's in your bulletin is three questions. That if you don't know Christ this morning, listen, I ask you, please look at your bulletin and consider them as we walk through them together. And if you do know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, your hope of glory, that you would take these and adopt these. You take a picture with your phone and try to memorize them or keep you on them. Keep them on your mind. And so here's three questions that I think we can draw from these plagues, five, six, and seven, the beginning of seven, that might better equip us to engage missionally, evangelistically, with those that may not know the Lord. Here's question number one. Why have you to this point not come to believe upon and worship Jesus? And this is a very genuine question that I think is, is, can be had in a private setting in particular. Much better than, by the way, over like texting or something like that. Better to be in the room with somebody. And just ask a genuine question. Why have you not yet come to believe upon Jesus? And what this question, if you're a note-taking person, you can write in there, the, this question is targeting the head. The head. Just like Pharaoh first asked for evidence, ask a question that deals with evidence. Why have you not yet come to, to worship Jesus as God? And it may just be, nobody's ever explained this to me. I don't know. So ask a question about the head. Second, if you can presume for a moment, and why do I say that? Because a lot of people will say, well, I don't believe in it, as though that gets them out of considering it. And so preface it in this way. If you can presume for a moment that the triune God revealed in Scripture is indeed the one true God, would you turn from your sin and worship Him today? If He is who Scripture presents Him to be, would you turn from sin and entrust your life to Him today and worship Him? First question dealt with the head. This question deals with the heart. Now they're in a situation where you're able to speak right to their pride. Either the answer to this question is yes, and their pride is immediately threatened because they're giving up lordship of their own life in self-service. Or they answer no and confess that their heart indeed is what Scripture says about their heart. Just as Dr. Hawking admitted, they actually love the darkness. They're not objective to evidence. And third now, we deal with the issue of morality and true love, the third question. Get them to speak to morality and what is actually the good and best gift that God can give. Two scenarios. Scenario number one, which is the greater gift? That God would give His fallen creation His stuff to do with it what they want for a season? I want to ask you a question. You be honest with me. What kind of father would you view me as? If I birthed our three sons, I didn't birth them, but I had three sons, okay. That'd be really impressive, Father. <laughs> if I had three sons and removed myself entirely from their lives, and I ascribed to the idea of our, even our own country as Westerners of liberty, and I said, I'm not going to involve myself in their life, but I will provide their every need and want. They can do what they want in their life as they desire. I'll give them my stuff. And they live how they want as long as they don't harm anybody. 
What kind of father would you view me as? Every one of us in this room, if we're being honest, you would look at me and say, Brent, that's not it. You're a terrible father. You're giving your sons no relationship with yourself. You're giving them stuff and then leaving them and then saying, well, they can do with it what they want. I'll make sure they have it and then I'll die. Then they'll die. Or what would be the greater gift? That God would reveal Himself clearly. That He would pay the cost that many might come to know and worship and forever rest in Him for His glory. See, it gets to the morality of the heart of the matter. We would all look objectively and say, that's the better gift. And that's what God has done in history, in Scripture. He's made Himself known. They're His people. They're His people. And the Lord has worked in such a way that if anyone but will turn from sin and entrust himself to Christ, they will have new life. And that's when Jesus takes of the Passover and then He reinstitutes it. And said, so you'll do this now in remembrance of Me, the shedding of My blood for the forgiveness of sins. That's the privilege that we have. You see, the greatest gift and the greatest purpose, name a better purpose in life than you could have than to proclaim the knowledge of the Savior. The one that saves us not by our resume, but by what He has done. True hope and true forgiveness. And even when I gave that example a moment ago, we all look at our own lives and say, I measure up in this way. But the picture is none of us measure up ultimately. But what Christ has done, He looks at us to all that will come into Him. And they are rescued and delivered by His blood. That's good news, isn't it? Do you think that's a good news that the world desperately needs to hear? We proclaim His death until He comes. Just as the judgments of God poured out upon Egypt proclaim God's glory and a knowledge of Him that would deliver Rahab and generations of Israelites, and so too it's a proclamation of a life transformed and transforming as we heard in, the, uh, in Olivia's testimony. Amelia's testimony. The Lord's working out in our lives to go faithfully to live for Him. So as we come to our next steps, in our bulletin section, you'll see this, next, these next steps. How exactly can we lean in in our lives to better grow as a part of the church family that both of those humility components would grow? That we would know people better in our lives and see Christ in them closer that we would be compelled to live repentant lives. On the other side, can I get close enough in relationships? How can I get more involved with the people of Grace Bible that I've committed myself to that they might see me and help to share Christ with me, help to refine me? Second, am I intentionally around someone that is far from God so that His name might be proclaimed? Do you have people in your life that don't know Jesus? Family members, friends, co-workers, classmates. Do you have people in your life that are far from Christ? And if you don't, how can, how can you reconcile that this week? How can you reconcile that this week? And what that often means in our lives is, is not carrying a pulpit over and bringing it before their house, but it means getting to know them well enough that you're burdened to be praying for them and burdened, burdened in that way to, to begin even asking them in person, can I, can I pray with you about that? And then begin, perhaps by God's grace, to deploy questions like this. It may take a while to unfold, but that they would know of the reason of the hope that is in you, that you're close enough that they might see that. And finally, this Lord's Supper is the tie between Christ's two comings. Now, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, 
If you've turned and trusted in Him and pledged your allegiance to Him, this Lord's Supper is a gift, as Pastor John said at the beginning of the service. Uh, we partake as a church family, proclaiming His death until He comes. Now, I stopped at chapter 7 where I did for a reason. Because next week, the point that we're going to observe is so significant that it will take a severe measure of time. But what we'll see happening in Egypt is the judgment of God is beginning to be poured out in such a way that Egypt, these people of, of same ethnicities and blood, is actually beginning to be broken into two kingdoms in Egypt. What we'll see is the hail judgment is so strong and Israel in the northern part of Egypt will be spared from the hail. And watch this. Many in Egypt will begin to fear the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the Lord God, more than they'll fear Pharaoh. And even though they're all still Egyptians, two kingdoms begin to form in Egypt. And on this day, hundreds of thousands of congregations all across the world, across Nacogdoches County and all over, gather together to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. From all over the nations, we proclaim our allegiance in Jesus Christ, the King. Jesus, the King, who lived the sinless life we cannot live. Who invites us to His table. Who has adopted us as children of light to walk in light and to know the love of God. And in this, this first coming, as we remember and, and pledge our allegiance and remind ourselves of that, we also look forward until He comes. Proclaiming our allegiance because a day will come in which He will come again. And in that time, we have fellowship with each other. Reconciling relationships that are frayed, asking for forgiveness and, and offering forgiveness together. We proclaim the Lord's rule and proclaim of His message because a day will come when we will no longer have opportunity to proclaim His glory on this earth. But until then, we live a life of response to His Word. Amen? Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians. This great gift to the church, this unifying component. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as you take the elements, you can open up the bread component portion and open that and take that one piece in your hand. And he recollects back to this Passover and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, church family. In a few chapters, when we get to Exodus 20, we see the giving of the commandments the commandments show indeed our need for Jesus. We look at the commandments and none of us stands righteous. And yet we see the character and the kindness and the holiness of God. The Scriptures make clear without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. We cannot make ourselves clean and right. But what Christ has done gives us hope. The spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He's the one we place our hope in, right believer? He's the one. And so we have hope Regardless of our season of, of grief, we grieve with hope. It's a season of joy. We have joy with steadied hope. 
verse 25, in the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, it is a privilege to proclaim your glory. We thank you, God, for showing us the way. For in our hardened rebellion, Lord, you sought us. You gave us new hearts. Lord, give us a continual humility and a weekly and daily knowledge and confession of sin and repentance, Lord, because we want to be close and, and walk in your way. We pray for those that may not know you yet. God, would you stir in their heart and affections for your glory and the love of God. As we sing now your praises, we pray that you're pleased. And we rejoice that in Christ you really are pleased that you love us this much. That Christ would die for us, raise again, ascend. That you intercede for our prayers when they're too deep often for understanding. And you love us. So God, as we live a life of response... Be pleased now as we sing together one corporate offering of song. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, church body?